Welcome back to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. This is a monthly podcast where I crack open the journals and read the articles so you don't have to. If you like what you hear and have the time, please go to iTunes and write a review for the podcast. It really helps out. If you have any suggestions for articles or comments on the podcast, don't forget to email info at gipearls.com. And if you are on Twitter, follow GI underscore Pearls. This is episode 31 for the month of April of 2019. We'll have a lot of leftovers from March because that episode was a little too short. So sorry about that. The good news is that everybody has recovered from their colds. And with that, let's go to the journals. We're going to start off with an article in GIE, which deals with esophageal squamous cell carcinoma. Squamous cell cancer of the esophagus is fairly uncommon in the United States, but it is a much bigger problem in Southeast Asia. And the incidence of squamous esophageal cancer in Western countries is growing. GIE published a cool article on a new model that helps predict individuals who are at high risk of esophageal squamous cell cancer. Generally, if you decide to screen for such things, you need to choose patients carefully. So you get most benefit to both patients and society in terms of who gets screened. Squamous cell esophageal cancer has a very poor prognosis globally with 15% five-year survival. Unclear if endoscopy helps in terms of improving mortality, but at least there's a potential to catch the cancer early and treat it successfully. This is studied done on Swedish nationwide database using a nested case control method, and they took into account age, sex, duration of smoking, and alcohol consumption, and generated a model to estimate absolute five-year risk of developing esophageal cancer. And their curves seem pretty good with the AUC of 0.81, They also generated an awesome table of number needed to screen values for different combination of factors, and it went as low as 497 patients for males between age of 60 and 64 who were smoking for over 35 years drinking alcohol, and it went down even further to the quote-unquote NNT, which is really number needed to screen, of 355 of older males in their 70s with the same risk factors. One question I have is that if everyone is smoking less, why are we still getting an increase in incidence of this cancer? Anyone has any ideas? Speaking of things that are annoying on the upper endoscopy is the gastric intestinal metaplasia. I guess the big review for this episode will be review concerning this topic. And this review um, I'm going to be reviewing comes from Judy True and Mohammed Bilal from University of Texas Medical Branch et al. We all find gastric intestinal metaplasia on random biopsies done during routine upper endoscopy, which is a typical precursor of gastric cancer, at least thought to be one. Gastric cancer, you may recall, comes in two types, diffuse and intestinal subtypes. Diffuse subtypes is the one mostly associated with genetic mutations whereas the intestinal subtypes that is transformed from intestinal metaplasia. The first insult thought to be chronic inflammation due to various factors, which is why H. pylori is the first thing on the list of culprits responsible for this subtype. In the U.S., the incidence of gastric cancer is highest among Koreans and Japanese Americans. Smoking increases your risk of developing gastric intestinal metaplasia about fourfold, and once you develop GIM, your risk of cancer goes up about ninefold. There are many different descriptors of endoscopic appearance of gastric intestinal metaplasia, but there is no highly sensitive or specific marker that you can look for on endoscopy, which is too bad. It's a lot easier to see when you're looking using narrowband imaging, but at the end of the day, unless you see a grossly abnormal island of tissue, you'll end up taking random biopsies of the stomach and hope to God that it doesn't come back as intestinal metaplasia so you don't have to deal with it. 
There are attempts at histologically risk stratifying these biopsies, but unless you see true signs of cancer, you probably only need to make sure that the stain for H. pylori is done, so at least you'll rule that out. There is gastritis staging system called OLGA, Operative Link on Gastritis Assessment Staging System. This one is tricky because you have to get gastric mapping in order to get stage 0 to stage 4, and basically the more areas of gastritis you have in the stomach, the higher the stage. So the OLGA system was later adopted for metaplasia, and now it's called OLGIM, O-L-G-I-M, and has five stages, stage 0 to stage 4. How do you get it? You take biopsies in the antrum, incisura, greater and lesser curvatures, and corpus. And then pathologist looks at it. If no metaplasia, you get a 0. Mild, you get a 1. Moderate, you get a 2. And severe, you get a 3. It's very cumbersome and time-consuming. So, to make a long story short, what the heck are you supposed to do when you find GIM? since we're not even sure if any of this makes any difference in terms of survival. So if you randomly find gastric intestinal metaplasia in the stomach, this review recommends the following. 1. And this should go without saying, but make sure that your patients who you found gastric intestinal metaplasia had a good endoscopic exam, including using NBI imaging at least, if not using chromoendoscopy. 2. Obviously biopsy any visible lesion, and if none are evidence, do biopsies of major parts of the stomach. And if you don't know how, look up gastric mapping for metaplasia and just follow the diagram. Use the Sydney protocol. What's that, you ask? Two biopsies for antrum, two from body, including greater and lesser curvature, plus one from the incisura. And it virtually diagnoses all cases of H. pylori infection, so you can't miss it. How often do you rescope these patients if you have intestinal metaplasia? That's the big question. And the answer is not set in stone, since there are no good guidelines. And all the major gastroenterological societies are pretty silent on this but three years is the target. So every three years, and do mapping every time you don't see anything suspicious. I'm going to skip the discussion what to do if you actually find cancer for another time, but this is a good review of gastric intestinal metaplasia, so go check it out. It is estimated that 15-30% to 30 of our attempts at removing whole polyp using EMR technique actually ends up growing back, meaning that we probably leave some pieces behind after EMR. This next prospective study published in Gastroenterology took 390 large polyps that were resected with EMR in Australia and randomly assigned half to burning the margins away with the tip of the snare using soft coag. So let's review the results. I'll just cut to the chase here, and it isn't really anything interesting in statistics here. Bottom line here is that there's a fourfold reduction in post-EMR adenoma recurrence at first surveillance. And these guys do a lot of surveillance, one at six months, one at 18 months, but hey, it's a study and non-burned polyps had a recurrence rate of something like 23%. So that's a lot. So conclusion here is that if you are not burning margins of your large polypectomy sites after EMR, maybe you should. There are a few variables that are worth mentioning. Some folks feel that resecting large polyps using a cold snare gives them a better look at the margins, since the tissue is not all cooked up, and you can easier see things. Others feel differently. But whichever way you cut it, post-EMR recurrence is an issue, it's still 5%, even if you burn the edges. So we have to be better and continue to improve our technique, especially when removing large polyps. Remember that NEGM study from Barcelona, where restrictive transfusion strategy was superior to just pouring blood into patients after an upper GI bleed? Well, that pretty much defined what we do these days. Later on, we also found out from a meta-analysis that came out from 2016 showing that in patients who have ongoing coronary events, restrictive strategy is not good if they're having an upper GI bleed. So we as GI docs kind of adopted a strategy of restricting blood for patients with an upper GI bleed 
and not restricting it for those who have some sort of a cardiac issue going on. Mind you, in the studies, the initial bleed was probably only seen in patients with the variceal GI bleeds. But anyway, how about lower GI bleeds? This new study published in Elementary Pharmacology and Therapeutics is a secondary analysis of prospective observational study from UK hospitals comparing restrictive versus liberal transfusions in about 600 patients. And by restrictive versus liberal, we probably mean something like hemoglobin around 7. You pour blood into them if it goes below that. And conclusion here is that liberal strategy was not associated with re-bleeding, something we worry about in upper GI bleeds. There was no difference in need for surgery, IR interventions, or in hospital mortality. And after multivariate analysis, there were no differences in outcomes between two strategies. My take on this is that in lower GI bleeds, restrictive strategy did not result in any harm per se. So for lower GI bleeds, restricting blood probably makes less sense. But once again, you got to do it on a patient-by-patient basis. When a patient is admitted to the hospital with severe ulcerative colitis flare, it'll be helpful to have some sort of a tool to predict how they will do, since up to a third of patients will need inpatient anti-TNF, cyclosporine induction, or even colectomy. This next study is a retrospective analysis of consecutive patients admitted with acute severe ulcerative colitis to a single gastroenterology center in Santa Maria Hospital, Lisbon, Portugal. In this case series, 42% of patients were refractory to IV steroids and 26.8% required surgery. It's about a third, which is in line with previous studies. And these guys took all the existing IBD scores out there, the Mayo endoscopic subscore, as well as the Oxford, Edinburgh, and the Lindgren scores, and then looked at the outcomes, which included IV steroid failure, need for rescue medical therapy, and surgery. And Lindgren score performed best in this study, What the heck is a Lindgren score, you ask? It's super easy. If you haven't been using it, you probably have been without realizing it, since it's only stool frequency per day plus 0.14 times the CRP. Basically, how high is your CRP and how badly is your diarrhea? And Lindgren score over 8 at day 3 has a positive predictive value for colectomy of 72%. And the reason I say you've been using it, it's a well-known fact that if your CRP is super high, and it doesn't go down, things are not going in the right direction. The Lindgren score showed the highest performance in predicting IV steroid failure, area under the curve of 0.856, need for medical rescue therapy, AUC of 0.82, and surgery. So there you have it, Lindgren score is useful. What's better, Vanco, Fiduxomycin, or FMT for recurrent C. diff? We kind of all have a feeling that FMT is probably going to be better. So how about a randomized trial? This single-center randomized trial comes out of Denmark on 64 patients with documented recurrence of their C. diff within 8 weeks after stopping their initial treatment. Primary endpoint was resolution of C. diff infection. So they compared FMT, Fiduximycin, and Vanco. FMT was mostly done by colonoscopy route, with few patients getting the nasojejunal tube and poop came from six healthy donors. These patients were not extremely sick, their white counts were not super high, and they were not ICU patients, and they had an average about seven bowel moves per day. So the result is not surprising, with 70% or so of FMT patients getting rid of their infections compared to only 33% for fidoxamycin and 19% for Vanco. There you have it, FMT wins again, at least for C. diff. New England Journal has been in a lot of hot water lately, at least in some circles. One reason for their terrible editorial recently condemning 
open access publishing, but they do publish good stuff once in a while. Augusto Villanueva from Mount Sinai in New York published a review of hepatocellular carcinoma, and it's actually very good. It's a review of epidemiology, genetics, and management of HCC. So let's go over it as well, starting with genetics. Mutations in the TERT promoter are the most frequent genetic alterations, many times because this is where the HBV genome inserts itself. There are also mutations in P53 and Wnt signaling pathways, as well as others. But in terms of molecular targets, HCC is among the solid cancers with the fewest somatic mutations, at least the ones that can be targeted with therapies. And currently there's no mutation that can be helpful in guiding therapeutic response either. Let's briefly talk about the risk factors for it. Obviously, hepatitis B and C are very important, as is cirrhosis, as HCC is rare without liver disease of some sort. Annual incidence of HCC in context of cirrhosis is something like 3%. NAFLD leading to HCC is still not very common, thankfully, though incidence is increasing. In 2016, there were 5,500 cases in the U.S. Apart from treating viral hepatitis, there are no drugs out there to prevent HCC, We'll skip the detailed surveillance discussion, which is important, but I think I went over it before. In terms of diagnosis, here's an interesting tidbit. Do you know why HCC lights up on CT? Meaning hyperenhancement in the arterial phase, followed by washout in venous or delayed phase on CT or MRI, and that's diagnostic for HCC, by the way. Turns out there's a vascular shift that happens during malignant transformation and growth of HCC where the cancer is supplied by the blood from the hepatic artery and the benign lesions are supplied by branches of the portal system. So you get the shift from vascular supply as the tumor grows, which is responsible for the finding that we see on imaging. What follows this is an excellent discussion on staging, but what I want to draw your attention to in the article is the excellent figure that summarizes all the major therapies that have been tried for hepatocellular carcinoma. And they're all tabulated based on overall survival, trial size, and median survival. It all looks very sad because many things have failed and currently other than serafinib, which in context doesn't look that impressive either, there's not much out there. One of the best new drugs, regorafenib, increased survival from 7.8 months to 10.6 months. Ugh, not very impressive. Things like surgery and taste and of course liver transplant are much more effective, but not everyone qualifies for these depending on staging. So go get your copy of this good review on the England Journal website. Speaking of NAFLD, Gastroenterology Journal has a big review on non-invasive assessment of liver disease in patients with NAFLD. We, of course, discussed this before, and there are many articles on this every year. Biggest takeaway from this one is what the algorithm for suspected NAFLD looks like. And I think it's best for primary care docs and people who don't see that many patients with NAFLD. The two tests used in the algorithm are FIB4 and NAFLD fibrosis score. I'm more partial to the fibrosis score, figuring that more variables will make it figuring that more variables will make it more reliable somehow, but that's not exactly true. And FIB4 is faster, huh? uh, having only four things in it. So if you get a low score, you pretty much tell patients to lose weight and exercise and reassess them yearly. If score is indeterminate or high risk, you recommend referral to a liver center or get transient elastography if you have access to it. If the risk on that test is high, then you go for biopsy. What I wish is that algorithms like that were weighted by that, I mean, at least give me an idea of how many patients in general fall into each category. Like what percent of average patients with suspected NAFLD have a low NAFLD fibrosis score? And what exactly is the proportion of patients with a high FIB4 score and just happen to have a low transient elastography scores? I just wonder what percent of patients fall into this category. 
Anyway, a very useful algorithm to share with your colleagues who want to treat more patients for NAFLD. Inflammatory bowel disease, a known risk factor for development of colorectal cancer, but the idea that the more inflammation you have, the more likely you are to have colon cancer is not novel. I mean, the whole thing about how cancer is a wound that never heals, etc., etc. In this paper published in April issue of Gastroenterology, the authors looked to see if presence of pseudopolyps found in patients with IBD is a risk factor for colon cancer. They looked at two cohorts, one from the U.S., and the other one from Netherlands, about 2,000 patients total for a follow-up of about five years. And I guess here we have one less thing to worry about. Patients who had pseudopolyps, at least based on this retrospective analysis of two cohorts, patients with pseudopolyps were not more likely to develop colorectal neoplasia. Did they have more inflammation and higher rates of colectomies? Sure, but no more cancer. This is puzzling to me for many reasons. One is why would more inflammation not equal more cancer? And the other question is, do we find more cancer in IBD patients because we are doing so many colonoscopies in these patients compared to general population? Who knows? But for now, at least if your patient has more pseudopolyps, that does not mean that their risk of colon cancer is higher. And the authors kind of suggest maybe we shouldn't survey these patients for colon cancer at least more often than we think. This next study is pretty quick. It was published in GIE and compared 54 patients who had endoscopic sleeve gastroplasty to traditional surgical sleeve gastrectomy. They looked at weight six months after the procedure. Here's a bit misleading sentence for you from the results. At six months follow-up, percent total body weight loss compared with baseline was significantly lower in the endoscopic group compared to the laparoscopy group, 17% versus 23%. Meaning the amount of weight loss is lower, or in other words, they didn't lose as much weight. Aside from a clever twist of words, the endoscopic sleeve is very promising, especially if you look at the data regarding onset of esophageal reflux, which is very common with laparoscopic sleeve. Endoscopic sleeve, only 2%, ended up with GERD, compared to 14% for surgery. Also reported is the lower rate of adverse events, 5% versus 17 for surgical sleeve in this small study. So I guess if I were a patient, I guess I'll take a little bit less weight loss if the surgery is safer and gives me less GERD. I have a feeling a lot of bariatric surgeons will jump on this technology and do it instead of balloon, or actually doing what they were taught to do, surgery. But I guess everybody's a winner here. One of what I call big questions in GI is the use of steroids to treat alcoholic hepatitis. The reason it's a big question is because initial studies promised a huge effect on mortality, but the latest studies, the answer is not so clear. In general, we don't really have much to offer to patients with alcohol-induced hepatitis, so we throw steroids on it, like any other disease we don't exactly understand. Anyhow, Cochrane Database Review released their latest spiel on alcoholic hepatitis. They reviewed 15 trials, well, really 16. I'll just read you the first sentence of their conclusion. We are very uncertain about the effect estimates of no difference between glucocorticosteroids and placebo, or no intervention on all-cause mortality and serious adverse events during treatment because the certainty of evidence was very low, and low health-related quality of life. And another quote comes from the Annals of Internal Medicine comment on this paper, and I found it delightful. All these years after Wayne Potts committed suicide over his failure to put the yellow man on roids, we still don't know if this intervention is helpful or harmful for patients for acute alcoholic hepatitis. Despite this review being based on 16 RCTs, the conclusion is that high risk of bias, low quality of evidence, wide confidence intervals make it essentially impossible to conclude for or against steroids. 
and for those of you who have not read House of God, that is a reference to a character from that book, where the yellow man, who's supposed to get steroids, doesn't get them. I can't believe that after 16 trials, we still don't know what really to do here. Alright, let's take a look at what's going on in clinical gastroenterology and hepatology. Anyone twisting your arm at your hospital to switch your patients to a biosimilar? We've recently switched to Inflectra from Remicade. Biosimilars are thought to be safe, and this clinical practice update in CGH gives you the details. There's a table showing you the current biosimilars on the market, two for adalimumab and three for infliximab. There's a review of studies showing that a biosimilar CTP13 is safe, with only one study reporting something like 4% adverse events, with other studies showing no difference in incidence rates of side effects. For some reason, the article doesn't mention the fact that CTP13 is actually Inflectra, the infliximab biosimilar from Celtrion. Inflectra is listed in the table, but a lot of talk is about CTP13 trials. And the other thing is, for some reason, some of the authors didn't disclose their financial conflicts. It's pretty easy to look these up on Docs for Dollars. Uh-oh. But anyway, biosimilars are here to stay. It remains to be seen if they actually save money for anyone long-term. And last note, FDA does not designate any of the biosimilars as interchangeable, since there is no safety data on multiple switches, so keep that in mind as well. And while we are on the topic of IBD, ever wonder exactly what you're supposed to do in terms of labs when you start patients on therapy, and when you're supposed to monitor what lab value? And wouldn't it be nice if all this data was in one table? Well, Kimberly Weaver and Millie Long from Chapel Hill put it all together for you in a clinical practice review in CGH for the month of April. New addition to the list is tofacitinib, of course, and it quickly became the most burdensome drug, overtaking methotrexate and thiopurines in terms of things you need to monitor for. So what exactly do you need for tofa? Hep B status, Q-gold or PPD, CBC with diff, and liver enzymes. Hep B and TB before initiation only, and all the other stuff at initiation, and then four to eight weeks after starting, and then every three months. So if you're choosing that drug because your patient is afraid of needles, they will have a lot of blood draws in their future. Sorry to break it to you. That is it for now. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. If you have time, please leave a review for the podcast on iTunes and follow me on Twitter at GI underscore Pearls. And if you have any questions or concerns, email me at info at GIPearls.com. Thanks again. Bye.